And I'm Kyle Thompson. And I'm C. Derek Varn. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time we are continuing our discussion of... Oh, what are we, what are we actually discussing? We're discussing Chapter 6 of Franz Osinga's book called Sci- uh, Science, Strategy and War, The Scientific Theory of John Boyd, which is about John Boyd, who's the actual subject of the show. There we go. Um, There's lots of meta in this one. Yeah, we're on, yeah. We're on a couple of layers of... Um, We're on on a couple of layers of analysis removed from the actual thing. Um, This, uh, in the previous episode, um, we introduced this whole John Boyd thing, and we um, had a look at this, the section of the chapter that was about destruction and creation. Um, This time we're going to move on to patterns of conflict, uh, in which Osinga walks us through a a slide deck that Boyd had prepared to present to um, the the military folks. and this is this is one of the, his big masterworks, um, and it's a hell of a it's a hell of a section. So I don't I doubt we're going to get through all of it in this episode. Yeah, I was about to say for a slide deck, this is like a book on grand strategy that requires you to have read about twenty other books. It's a lot because like I mean, <laughs> the thing that yes. will just kind of throw away a line. It's like oh yeah, and then Boyd spends seventeen slides discussing uh, early German maneuvers against France and the Low Countries, and it's like well, seventeen fucking slides. Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. His audience would be familiar with all of this stuff from officer school, right? Yeah, I guess so. So this section will be, um, or I guess, uh, patterns of conflict is kind of structured as. It's kind of an elaboration of the core theory that Boyd is always working with, coupled to a historical analysis. This is where he kind of brings in historical examples. Um, and I'll, I'll quote from the, the, the introduction here that the mission of patterns of conflict is fourfold. To make manifest the nature of moral, mental, physical conflict. To discern a pattern for successful operations. To help generalize tactics and strategy. And to find a basis for grand strategy. And the intent is nothing less than to unveil the character of conflict, survival, and conquest. Um, a lot of emphasis will be placed on the moral, mental, physical nature of conflict. And um, to kind of spoil the ending, Boyd really emphasizes the moral, mental dimension. Uh, basically that, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit last time, but like um, the attrition style of warfare where we, you just take a big hammer and you smack a big rock with it. Um, that's kind of a parallel trick, you know, anyone can smack a rock, but outwitting and outmaneuvering an enemy and disrupting them to the point where they collapse without necessarily ever needing to fight them, that's a hell of a trick. And that's where our efforts should be focused. Uh, yeah, the, the, in the uh, OODA loop, uh, the second section is the Orient section. And uh, last episode, we talked about how Boyd says that's the most important one. And accordingly... It means that uh, it is also the biggest target uh, for you to attack. So if your orientation is strong and their orientation can be weakened, um, that is a, a big target um, that you can hit. Yeah. Um, it's also probably the things that, you, like observation and orientation are the things that you can screw with the most. Um, whereas you, it's, it's harder to break down the, ability, the enemy's ability to decide. Um, but if you can scramble their circuits such that they can't observe the world accurately and they can't orient themselves, then you can induce, basically collapse into confusion and disorder. Um, you, you can create a, an environment that's changing so rapidly that they can't keep track of things. And that's what will defeat them. 
that is how you do the whole decision thing, actually, is messing with the first two. Because otherwise, people are just going to make a decision. I mean, even arbitrarily. But but if you don't know what's going on, can't really make a decision. Or in decision that you make may not actually be the decision that you're making. <laughs> so... Or um, to, to, to kind of draw an example from pop culture, perhaps, if you could think of, like, the film Aliens, where the squad are kind of, like, crawling through this, you know, alien-infested tunnels, and suddenly the aliens start coming out of the walls, and they're scrambling all over the place. And at some point, the troopers are just firing wildly into the air. That's their decision, is to just start pulling the trigger and firing anywhere. But they're being swarmed and overwhelmed by all these, like, skittering, monstrous, monstrous sort of things. That's a highly Boydian <laughs> way of engaging. Um, One thing I think we're going to have to deal with here, though, is the the view on human nature. Um, I think we're going to find seemingly Darwinian and Hobbesian, but there's a lot of points where Void uh, Void seems to like drop into basically virtue thinking. Um, yep, absolutely. The more the more sophisticated his thinking gets, uh, the less Hobbesian it is. So I think there's a there's a there's a considerable gap between what we covered last time with destruction and creation and uh, the conclusions that Boyd comes to in this uh, patterns of conflict section. No, I just think it's interesting because the the Hobbesian assumptions of this seem to apply for the again to the states, but the internal the internal cultures of these states is really going to affect the the O and the O and the ODA loop. So, um. And those aren't Hobbesian, like, and they they seem to. It seems to be implied they can't be in things function. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, and that's just where when I think it's interesting too when we start with uh, Sunzwa and then go to Napoleon because um, it does feel like hey, no one was writing about war for fifteen hundred years. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whenever so, yeah. you see this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so Derek, you could kick us off on the historical snapshots um, section here with the the path from Schwanza to Napoleon. Well, I mean, Boyd starts off with this idea that the Eastern commanders um, from Sunza forward are much better at war because they avoiding they avoid fighting and protracted war and are not, and are aimed at reducing casualties for all sides. Um, and so you have a lot of focus on stuff like, you know, the appearance of harmony, deception, speed, um, dispersion, and shock tactics. Um, and he points out specifically what Swunza advocates, you know, which is uh, probe the enemy's organization and disposition to master strengths. Basically, build a a model of the of the thought world and the virtue virtue set of your enemy. Um, and then play to their perceptions and biases, attack the enemy's plans as opposed to just attacking the enemy. And he explicitly mentions, um, uh, Shengen Chi, uh, I think my Mandarin's crap. Um, and the 37 maneuvers, um, which are all about, you know, throwing people off expectations. Uh, uh, now, he, when he switches to Western commanders, basically it's Genghis Khan, nothing, 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 nothing. Um, and also, it's kind of weird to consider Genghis Khan a Western commander. That's a different question. Um, Napoleon. 
And then, and then from Napoleon forward, stupid, according to, to Boyd, uh, stupid for 200 years, and then um, World War I basically forces people to not be stupid because the attrition warfare becomes too costly. Um, but, I mean, I think it's interesting because it's what I found interesting about this and Boyd's, when we get to the, the historical cliff later, um, is he picks up that, for example, Lenin and Mao you know, have their theories of warfare and do a lot with that, and they have some interesting insights. But if you look at what Lenin and Mao's, particularly Lenin's model of war was, it was Napoleonic. And that's also how they structured their party. Was, you know, was this German central command thing. And when I've pointed out to people that, you know, a lot of stuff doesn't work that way, even in military planning. And yet you guys are still telling people in the 21st century that that form of centralization is optimal. You know, Boyd would just laugh at them, I think. like, Yeah. That, sh- that shit is clown shit. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, so, so uh, the thing then that happens with um, Napoleon is that... It, it, there's a kind of um, interesting thing here where Napoleon inherits a fairly dynamic and self-organized military from the revolution, but then under Napoleon's leadership, it centralizes and becomes shit, and that's when they start losing. Yeah, so this is uh, even uh, Osinga notes that uh, this is a um, disputed interpretation of what actually happened of, of the of the history of what Napoleon did and how the army changed. But this is the way that Boyd is presenting it. Like basically, Napoleon is this kind of hinge figure where in his early career. He had that flexibility and dynamism of the sort of uh, the army of merit, the the revolutionary army. Um, And then in the uh, latter part of his military career, uh, he was much less flexible and started to commit all of the sins that would, uh, you know, represent attrition warfare uh, up until uh, the First World War. Mm -hmm. Do we think that's true? (laughs) I don't actually I don't know. And I know I know the time period pretty well. But like how like for example, by the time the Napoleonic army crushes the Habsburgs, is it already centralized? Yes, I believe that is uh, one of the things that's mentioned in the footnotes. Um, that that's the Austerlitz battle, right? I think he, he, yeah, that's like sort of the beginning of that era. I, I, I think that uh, he's mentioning yeah. So as well as the centralization, the other thing that Boyd is harping on here is the. Transition from having high variety units with high variety maneuvers, which sow confusion among the enemy, and then that transitioning towards having stereotyped units, like big formations of the same shit over and over again, and backing up with artillery, which is go is a low variety kind of army with a low variety like maneuvers. Which is World War One. Mm-hmm. That, that that's getting in that direction. Yeah. And the 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 sort of the the point that uh, Boyd's critics make that sort of doesn't really disprove his overall point is that um, Napoleon's opponents started to learn from his tactics. And so he adapted to face his own tactics. 
Um, and so that's kind of where he got into this stereotyped uh, point. So it may just be that, like, you know, the... The, the sort of genius of, of maneuver warfare shifted away from Napoleon to someone else, but it doesn't mean that Napoleon, uh, Napoleon, uh, Napoleon's original tactics were, were, were bad or that they were invalidated by the later period. So, yeah. yeah. Um, the, I think uh, there's a point somewhere around here as well that I think is really important, interesting, that the, one of the big problems with the centralization effort was that... Um, what it kind of did, well, again, the way it's framed by Boyd is that it kind of robbed the lower levels of the forces, like it robbed the ground units of their autonomy and their kind of dynamism. And, but preserved the dynamism, dynamism was still present and like self-organization was still present, but only in the central command. So the 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 top of the army res reserves its um, autonomy and its ability to make rich decisions, um, but kind of strips out the the same stuff from the lower ranks so you get more towards um, a force that's supposed to be highly stereotyped and highly rigid except for the top where they reserve all their the the shiny playthings up there yeah and you see this later in like the prussian general staff like they were um quite creative uh they use lots of war games to maintain that dynamism they were quite innovative uh but of course uh yeah, we don't really um, we don't really see that uh, sort of creative and dynamic culture as being characteristic of the army as a whole. It's it's just that that inside circle of intellectuals and uh, that that have that dynamism. And does does he say this is kind of like um this is a pathology of the aristocratic mind, basically that this is a kind of or it's a pathology of aristocratic culture that like the officer arist aristocracy kind of class had to reserve those kind of like dynamic privileges for themselves and kind of strip them from everyone else below them. I think it's that. And it's also, um, seeing, uh, soldiers as expendable, uh, like in a, a very, uh, yeah, like basically just seeing them as a different kind of being that isn't really human in the same way that you are, uh, is, is part of the pathology. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing when you look at, the technological development, which makes war much more of a meat grinder. Like when you think about even from, let's say the British empire up through the Napoleonic wars, war is brutal and even brutal on civilian populations. But, um, and they were basing a lot of their formations off of phalanx models with guns, which is <laughs> when I realized that, Oh As an adult, God. I was like, oh, that's why they did that. That's stupid. Um, <laughs> but I get why they're doing it now, because they're treating, like, obviously the heavy the heavy armored cavalry stuff is not relevant um, in the same way that it would have been before projectile weapons. So where are we at? Oh, let's revert back to Roman and phalanx forms, <laughs> but with guns. Well, because gun a gun is just a long spear, right? You know. Right, but that I mean, like, if you look at look at the 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 um, early modern military formations, and and you realize, oh, that's what they're doing because they think they can pull directly from classic from classics how to do warfare. Um. So. What, what I'm thinking about this, the, the, the thing that's not mentioned directly that's interesting, though, 
is um, this spurs on a lot of technological innovation, this attrition warfare model. Um, because the only place as an aristocrat you can really innovate is in tactics or in machinery. You can't innovate an individual like, you know, soldiery because they're expendable anyway. And if you can't predict what they're doing, how can you be this innovative super general? So that, but that also undermines the efficacy of the, um, of the infantry because the infantry are just basically meat cogs. Um, and that's also a way to de demoralize your army incredibly quickly. And you, you see a shift in the attitudes of war, particularly um, when you start doing this with massive conscript armies, which really begins um, in, in the European theater, you know, around this time. It's when, you know, it's when you go back to huge amounts of conscript um, soldiery, whereas, um, you know, for for basically a thousand years and, you know, um, from from uh, late antique to early modern um, warfare is an aristocrat's game almost entirely with some peasants being involved. But if you like take too many peasants out, you don't have food. So the entire calculus is on how you expend people are different. So the the class mentality, actually, the aristocratic mentality, somewhat makes sense when your primary warriors are just other aristocrats. And yeah, that might fuck up the peasantry, but they're not going to go and just strategically sacrifice it all because then they can't eat. And that's a completely different calculus. And and what's interesting is Boyd's focus on tactics means he doesn't really see this as part of the what's driving these strategic developments. Right. Well, yeah, I, I think that um, I think your point about the uh, class character of this form of warfare and, and the point that uh, that Boyd makes here um, uh, is is really visible in the. Um, difference between uh the american revolutionary army and the european armies of the same era um at the um end of the 18th century uh beginning of the 19th century um where yeah the the american uh revolutionary army was uh you know they, they had to develop all of these new um methods of instruction, tactics, all kinds of things to deal with fairly unruly people uh, who were volunteering or had a much greater degree of autonomy than than European soldiers did. Um, whereas the European method was extremely brutal and uh, top-down. Um, and uh, that was, of course, based on the aristocratic model where, like, uh, the soldiery are basically uh, objects that you move around a chessboard. Um, well, especially if you have them in like, you know, infantry squares, right? Where they just become like shapes that you can move around. Um, whereas the American method was, you know, it em emphasized more like the understanding of the soldier and all this kind of stuff. Just as a matter of necessity, they had to do that because people wouldn't listen to them. Otherwise, they just go off into the woods somewhere. Um, and, uh, I remember in, um, 
sorry, Mike Duncan's uh, biography of de Tocqueville, he talks about how like, you know, when de Tocqueville was working with the Americans, they were, they were following that American model. But when he came back to uh, France and he was trying to um, lead the uh, revolutionary army forces, uh, he just like fell back into the old aristocratic way of doing things and like completely sabotaged his, uh, his entire political uh, chances um, at the start of the revolution because his, uh, his men uh, hated him and would not fight for him. Um, uh, whereas, you know, they loved him when he was in America because it was a very different way of doing things. Um, so just being surrounded by that aristocratic context really um, meant that there was a different way of doing war. Um, and yeah, I suppose the dynamic uh, the dynamic Napoleon uh, that uh, Boyd idolizes uh, is probably um, also a product of that uh, democratic impulse that meant that the way of doing war had to change um, because otherwise the, 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 the soldiers would not be effective um, because they just they had more autonomy. So like in a... In a um in a class society like that, the centre of gravity is towards this um, attrition, aristocratic style of warfare, unless there's some countervailing force, such as the fact that the Americans were dealing with people who were essentially wild dogs and would just run off and not, not bother to, 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 to deal with them if they ever pissed them off. Or if, you know, say the, 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 the army that Napoleon inherits from the revolution is, is tempered a little bit differently, but then in the absence of those kind of counter pressures, it all just kind of gravitates towards the aristocratic attrition style. Yeah. And it, it should be said that, you know, sort of getting to what Derek, what you said, it, um, this is like a aristocratic form of war in a, in more of a mass society, right? Like it's, it's, it's an aristocratic form of war where you have a sufficient surplus that you can be quite wanton in your expenditure of human life. Uh, and you're not living on the margins of the like very narrow margins of agricultural production. Um, so it's like the aristocrats trying to control a mass of humanity that is not quite in the position they were in uh during the middle ages um, right yeah i mean if you see if you look at the historical playing this out this is actually more than any singular revolution what destroys aristocratic uh culture in europe is that their way of doing war um totally delegitimizes them um with with a mass public which is significantly larger than them and also doesn't really need them anymore. And um, except for government protections, uh, uh, they can't really, pro I mean, they also are not the only people with swords and horses now. I mean, it's so like, there's a very real sense in which, in which this, this uh, development of weaponry seems to be a way to maintain a monopoly on war powers. Um, but it doesn't really work out for the aristocrats because they're not really trained to make this stuff. Plus, like, if you look at, for example, the British case, so many of them are killed in the attrition warfare in World War I. Like, 
like the aristocrats do not escape the meat grinder in World War One for the British, at least. Um, I've just been thinking of um, the fourth season of Blackadder, in which um, Lord General Melchish, Stephen Fry's character, is unequivocally framed as a pampered imbecile who's just f- f- uh, feeding the, pe- the um, his people into a meat grinder um, obliviously, like episode after episode. Is that that like? Um, delegitimization and stuff is extremely palpable by the point by the time you get to filming that series where it's a kind of completely accepted thing that these these people absolutely fucking blew it and were are seen as as an essentially evil presence well yeah and it was actually this uh reactionary impulse against the um the leveling effect of firearms that led japan to ban them uh, during the period of, of uh, Sakoku or isolation, like the 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 destruction of the firearms and like you know really extreme gun control was basically there to prevent um, this delegitimization of the aristocracy. Right, which is which is interesting, right? Because right wing talking points about gun control are actually right about that, but they're in the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Because yeah. now people have nukes, so that's all irrelevant. Yeah. I'm going to go buy a nuke, like something out of fucking Snow Crash, you know? Um, so but, but there is a little bit, sec- a section a little bit later about the, the sort of nightmare of the Industrial Revolution and what it does to warfare. But before we get to that, he, um, Boyd has some critiques of Clausewitz and Jomini. Um So, Kyle, what, what's, what's his kind of beef with these folks? Uh, right. So Clausewitz uh, was a kind of observer and, and student of Napoleon's uh, method of war um, and obviously very, very influential, continues to be influential to this day. Um, uh, and Boyd criticizes Clausewitz as being uh, too focused on the latter Napoleon, so the less dynamic, more aristocratic, more attrition focused Napoleon, and thus missing the point of Napoleon's genius. Um, uh, so Clausewitz's doctrine is focusing on, uh, exhausting the enemy. Um, so basically undermining their ability to act that it puts the emphasis on that, that final point in the OODA loop. Um, uh, it's focused on identifying centers of gravity and smashing them. So find the points where they are strongest and destroy them. Um, uh, it's focuses on uh, main operations, so large-scale operations. Um, it has a focus on speed. Um, you know, of course, uh, like marching faster, having faster logistics, all that kind of stuff. Um, the emphasis is on uh, seeking a major battle and winning it. So, so draw your enemy into a decisive conflict and smash them there. Um, this is the doctrine. Um, the aim is the destruction of enemy forces, and of course, this leads to a bloodbath because um, you are you are seeking to uh, inflict a high body count on your enemy, which will cause them to uh, give up the fight. Um, so Boyd says, instead, uh, we should uh, seek to disrupt and confuse enemy communications. Um, so disrupt and confuse enemy communications, that is the linkages uh, between points of gravity or centers of gravity, uh, not those centers themselves. Uh, sever and isolate multiple centers of gravity, discoordinate them so that they fall apart, 
and confuse and terrify the enemy. So again, uh, attack that orient point in the OODA loop uh, uh, first and foremost. So it's conspicuously about like slicing up the enemy's nervous system rather than attacking the organs necessarily. Yeah, the way I think about it is um, essentially if you think about uh, the VSM, the viable system model, and the way that it is a model of uh, physiology and not anatomy, um, uh, it is a model of the the, the functional connections of of a system, uh, not of the uh, material components of it. uh, the Boydian doctrine is essentially like to use the VSM as like a manual for what to attack, right? You want to attack those systems, um, those VSM systems. You don't want to attack like the meat, right? <laughs> you want to do, you want, yeah, you want to be like a kind of like a, a nervous system disorder, not a, um, uh, uh, a, a, a localized cancer or something like that, right? Yeah, right. Which, which is interesting. There, there's a couple of things that this this changes that I think um, should be really addressed because this is also the heart of counterinsurgency theory, but and insurgency theory, and this comes up in fifth gen warfare text. So if you've ever read William Lind, it comes up. Um, what I would say is that what, one of the things Clausewitz assumes that's just kind of frankly stupid, um, is that the stakes are the same for both sides because one has, because the, the political annihilation is inevitable, but even at the time period before, before, you know, full industrial revolution, you look at the United States, um, uh, the United States, the the U.S. Army, the the Union Army during during that time period was kind of shit, and one of the reasons why um, was that, and part of its motivation and part of the moral fighting core, and that'll come up later. But part of it is also, um, it was based on an attrition model, and and the South um, was also kind of based on the attrition model. But the South was fighting in its home turf, so its so its logic for fighting was actually more severe, um, because it saw itself as defending everything, not just defending some political concept. And the the casualties taken during most of the war were two to one, uh, two times the dead of the Union, and the and how Grant won that war um, in particular is one Sherman leasing basically doing uh, proto-Boydenism with a terror tactic um, of just totally trying to disrupt the supply chain. And the other reason was that Grant had no, you know, for all the benefits of Ulysses as Grant, he had no problem throwing a whole bunch of Irish immigrants into a meat grinder. Um, And that's effectively what he did. So, but... This is a this led to bad instincts later on. So if you look at like insurgency tactics, one of the reasons why occupations and all the colonial governments uh, failed is they they, they took this Clausewitz model. I um, mean, they thought since they could inflict five to ten times the casualties, they were insured to win. But the Clausewitz model doesn't factor in difference in motivation. 
and difference in the and, and difference in the in in the game of winning. So all you have to do as an insurgency is cause enough attrition to make it too costly to maintain the occupation. That's a completely different calculation than causing enough attrition where where the army will, you know, in the case of an occupied state, will literally let itself die. Um, Cosmos doesn't deal with any of that. It's not in his calculations as he was commonly interpreted. I mean, do you see the same thing happening in, like, the American War of Independence where the British were overextended across an ocean and they could always just fuck off back to England and call it quits, whereas the... I Yes, that, that's why the most powerful army in the world did not beat a bunch of ragtag guerrillas who were not particularly well-trained and, if we're completely honest, didn't have particularly good leadership either. Like, Washington was kind of a mediocre general. Yeah, and, and the guerrillas were hungry because they were on their home turf and fighting for everything, whereas the Brits were like, yeah, fuck this, we're, we're out. Right, and the only reason the Brits probably fought as hard as they did, frankly, was, uh, was colonials who were fighting for them. Um, but they were not in charge most of the time. So, like, you know, the third of the United States that was still loyalist, and then, you know, you bastards in Canada. So those, those asymmetries matter hugely. Well, yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the, the Quebecois and their allies, um, you know, they were impossible to defeat because uh, a number of factors, but one of the most important ones was that, like, at a level of, of morale and orientation, um, they were just vastly superior to the American forces that were invading. Um, because not, not because they were fighting for the British crown, but because they were fighting on home turf. And, they were fighting for Quebec. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. Or for, for our, what was left of Arcadia against some English-speaking bastards who had already screwed them over. Um, and, and, I mean, another thing I think people, and Americans don't ever learn about that part of the war, but I think you really see these stakes really changing, for example, um, in the War of 1812, where the U.S. tries to finish liberating uh, its colonial brethren in the north, Um and again, it's always funny when you go back and read uh, U.S. textbooks because they usually clean up the references to Canadian colonies. Because um, uh, you know, I was reading De Quebecor once, and he's you know, and he's advocating for the U.S. side, and he's mentioning Nova Scotia joining the Union, um, and all that stuff is just like no one ever discusses that, that was even a possibility. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like they're like, oh, the thirteen colonies. I'm like, yeah, but we didn't just want it to be thirteen. We wanted Ontario and Quebec and Nova Scotia too. Um, I mean, if, but anyway, um, the but in 1812, you see that when you start fighting the the colonials on their home turf as an invading force, um, the proto Canadians win and win big. Because the stakes are completely different, and they're kind of in charge of their own war effort, which they weren't in the Revolutionary War. So it's so these factors really matter. Um, and um, Clausewitz style warfare doesn't doesn't really address them at and, all, and it doesn't address Napoleon's uh, you know failures in Spain, right? which is the sort of the most obvious, like, direct uh, connection, right? The, the guerrilla warfare that he had to face in Spain. 
He dresses it in Russia, but not in Spain, and it's kind of a big deal. And, like, you know, as to why, why this is all relevant for this show and this kind of project is, I mean, what, what did we say earlier that, like, basically all of the left are Clausewitzians at this point? And, um, yeah, I, yeah, we said that off air, but, yeah, I said need, it. Need to get their fucking head together uh, on this stuff. Everything is mass movements and, and decisive mass battles and winning through attrition. Uh, what, and smashing sinners' gravity, even though, the, you know, they're not thinking about it in terms of war, they're thinking about it in terms of voting. Um, and also... When they try to do something sneaky like the dirty break, they announce it to the entire fucking world as if the enemy isn't listening, which is dumb. So they're not even good class Wiscians, but I mean, like, it's it, their instincts are from that period, partly because, if we're completely honest, um, the strategies the left developed politically are from a time period where these are the dominant war methods. And I, I point this out, for example, on... Uh, on protesting. Originally protesting up through and including Gandhi is about one thing. The reason why you feel the protest is that you are saying I have enough people to field an insurrectionary army if you ignore the petition. That, that's what a demonstration is. It's a demonstration of potential force. That, that's, that's why it's called a demonstration. <laughs> yeah. Right. But now this has all become like forgotten habit of, of leftists. And they like, well, why don't these protests work? Well, you don't they're not none of that's relevant anymore. Like like in, 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 in mass power warfare, I can mow down a, a demonstration of even a million people in maybe a, a couple hours. It's a few bombs and a drone strike. I mean, like, I don't think people remotely understand that. But our time period where we develop these these strategies are the time period leading up to to Lenin. You know that's it's it's and, it, and you see it in the Marxist metaphors. All the Marxist political metaphors, all of them, are like Napoleonic, Prussian central staff. Uh, you know, you know this, that, and the other. Um, and it's interesting because you know as we're going to get to in a little while, but like. Um. Boyd realizes that Lennon and Mao, even though they talk this way, they don't actually do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They do something actually pretty damn effective. Um, so before, after Clausewitz, um, Boyd takes a swing at this guy, uh, Jomini. Who I didn't know much about, actually. There isn't much here about him either, really. It's just that um, this guy had a sim similar sort of problems to Clausewitz. He was a bit better in some ways, that he has this influence in emphasis on freedom of movement and communications. But um, I think this is an interesting critique. He's critiqued for being too occupied with the forms of operation and the spatial arrangement of forces, and still basically doesn't get the point that that, that point is getting to. But he's kind of skipped over in that... There's a common flaw here. It's this like emphasis on adaptability and freedom at the top, but the stereotyping and rigidity at the bottom that we were talking about, this aristocratic form of warfare. Honestly, this was like uh, George Washington's failure as a general too, right? Um, he's, you see a list with a lot of bad generals. Um, they get obsessed with the forms of operation and spatial arrangement of forces, and they, they do these like really elaborate maneuvers uh, because they... They're, they want to be special smart boys, um, uh, but uh, it, it's it's not actually the best form of generalship. Wonder, it, it, it sort of set me off thinking about um, when we were reading the stuff about the capitalist scene and that kind of like 
um, ocular uh, cadastral sort of bias in like seeing shapes and arrangements from above um, that sort of stuff. I wonder if there's something similar going on here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's also like these people were often trained in manuals that describe the exploits of Roman generals in the form of, uh, of these kind of spatial movements. Um, and and that yeah, and they thought like you know. Like the true form of warfare is what you learn from the textbook about Roman generals. It's geometry. <laughs> the yeah. true warfare is geometry. I mean, this is what I was saying earlier about all those early modern armies walking in phalanx formation. Like, it's exactly where they got that from. It, what's What's interesting is I think Jomini. Um, I was just looking him up because I'm like, I bet you if I went to West Point. Um, I would know who he was and like, yeah, I would. Apparently he's major still. Um, he's the person who came up with the term logistics. So that's that's him. Um, he's an aristocrat. Surprise. Uh, but one who was actually he was a kind of a bourgeois aristocrat, actually had a business career, um, but was not very good at it. Um, and then got involved with the Swiss, with the Swiss Army and the Helvetic Republic. And I think it's very interesting that our entire time period, where everybody's studying these period, uh, these people, is is early modern and late early modern. And, and people who aren't used to this taxonomy. That's like um, basically end of feudal feudal empires, the beginning of the republics. But that's also before the Industrial Revolution, and that's where all these people come from. And it just seems disastrous that we still teach this stuff, actually, um, post-Industrial post Revolution. And, like, that, that reaches its apex in this little microsection on the kind of curse of the Industrial Revolution, right? That this kind of aristocratic um, form of warfare kind of gets amplified by several orders of magnitude by the introduction of the railroad, machine gun, artillery, barbed wire, masses of hardware, masses of manpower, this this mass manufacture be just becoming mass slaughter. And it is that, that kind of fusion of mass industrial society with this kind of aristocratic class mode of control um, producing, it, it, it's like, it's stereotyped tactics, stereotyped units, and stereotyped strategy. It's total variety collapse. And then the technology is really just a bigger club. You're, you're fighting with primitive tools that are dialed up to 11, which of course leads to this heinous destruction of human life. And yeah, I think in this section, it's this kind of attrition warfare is framed as a pathology of aristocratic culture. Um, and that, that, that's it, like World War One being this like huge collision of all these kinds of different, the different tendencies that just, I don't know, it's, <laughs> it's fucking incredible. And like, I don't know, so much of the, ghastly shit that we are we still have is is still from this like the kind of because that, that kind of aristocratic mode of thinking and the kind of fusion with mass um mass industry is the like germinal seeds of like fascistic thought and i don't know there's there's so much fucking ugly shit that that spills out from here yeah that's right yeah it's 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 yeah that's a lot of what fascism uh, as a culture is about right it's like reveling in that shit but also like <laughs> wanting to transcend the aristocracy at the same time <laughs> it, it, it is 
um, in many ways, uh, modernist reactionaryism, which which I think is something people when people talk about like, are Nazis right or left? Well, both and neither. Um, uh, and that's why, and you can kind of see this in, in the way they conceive of war, which is these mass, uh, these mass battles of speed, which they understand, but they're still kind of mass attrition battles. And, and it, it would be very interesting to, to actually study outside of the, the Wehrmacht, um, fascist military, uh, tactics because outside of outside of Germany they actually seem to be stupid. Um, so <laughs> I mean Germany is actually interesting. The interesting exception to it, like I'm thinking about like the Romanian Guard, uh, the Falange. The Falange can beat the Republic, but only because only because the uh, the Republic itself is being idiotic and is self divided and can't maintain unity. Um, not because the Falange is a particularly good army. Um, you know, it's, there's stuff like that. Yeah, basically without exception, the fascists outside of Germany are pretty hopeless at, at fighting. Yeah. Interesting. So there, there's a kind of thing here where, like, because this is the apex of, like, this, the, the, this mass aristocratic style of warfare being the stupidest and most destructive style of warfare... And it also did this kind of time period, this like concept of the mass uh, industrial sort of stuff is also where a lot of the left's imagination still is. Like there's something really troubling about all this that like, it, it's, it's not just that our ideas are completely out of date, but they're out of date from a time period that was also extremely fucking stupid and destructive. And I don't know, there's, there's a couple of layers of failure going on there. Well, I mean, it, it, like for example, the the organizational models of of leftists when they're not based on centralized military units like the Prussian army, which we could talk about why that's dumb. They're based on factory models, which like don't really. I mean, factories don't work like even modern factories don't work like um, early twentieth century or nineteenth century factories. That's that's why it always feels like. I mean, even in leftist analysis, and I'm not going to go too far because this will get us like completely off. But like, they're always fighting the last periodization, the last categorization. Uh, so, for example, like the the whole like, everything is neoliberal trend really probably only popped up in leftism as a as a major discussion point after neoliberalism is on the way out, which I think is like. In 2007 is when you really start seeing the shift away from it. And people are like, what? And I'm like, yeah, quantitative easing, man. Um, but. Yeah. And well, it's it's very interesting, right? Because like I think the places where I find the the most discussion of neoliberalism are like, you know, like I find way more emphasis on neoliberalism, say, here in the Netherlands than I would in Canada because like they're they're kind of like s- still somewhat stuck in that battle between social democracy and neoliberalism, um, whereas like most places have moved on from that at this point. But if you look at like left discussion, and it was like that way with Fordism too, when everybody was throwing post Fordism around in the aughts, like it had been dead for two decades. So, um, 
I, I think this orientational loop. Now, some of this is like the the loops of academia, but our instincts and our understandings of periodizations, our instincts on math politics, are all stuck in this time period. And even when they like learn from Lenin and our Mao, and like like one of the things I'll say uh, about this is the O the uh, O O D A loop is very useful when you for for battles that aren't actual shooting wars. Certain guerrilla tactics actually aren't. Like, they're really shooting war-only tactics. So, um, so it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing to see. And it's also interesting to me how, how left thinkers um, are stuck in this. And the ones that win, um, for whatever reason, tend to say, they tend to still talk this way and actually tend to think they are thinking this way but do something else because of constraints. And if you look at uh, what, but what I think the reason why I say they still kind of think this way, if you look at like the way the, the Leninist organized the state and society in Russia, it actually is like a Clausewitzian army. Um, the teleological orientation debates, if people don't know what that is, they should go look it up is, is very much based on taking the ideas of the Prussian central staff and applying it to, to statecraft to build to, to build up developmental models and it was a fucking disaster. So like Oh Jesus. Um yeah, so let's let's move on to rediscovering flexibility, um, where Boyd will walk us through from World War One attrition all the way up to con- more contemporary infiltration and guerrilla tactics. Um so Kyle, what's what's the infiltration stuff here with the Germans specifically? Right. So this is the um, kind of like German innovations in warfare that happen when they they realize that they're really on the back foot and, um, you know, maybe the Americans are going to join the war. Like they've got to be creative, right? They've they've got to come up with some some different strategies and different tactics. And so th- this is World War Two, right? This is the Nazis. Uh, no, this is World War One. No. OK, cool. Gotcha. That wasn't enter- entirely clear from the text. Right. So um, so they do some kinds of uh, like tactical uh, innovations uh, around infiltration. Uh, so imagine, you know, these are the the uh, battlefields mostly of of Western Europe. I think he's talking about here, uh, which was were much more stymied than the ones in the east. The, the ones in the east were similar, but not entirely the same. Uh, so um, they use things like uh, brief, intense barrages. Um, with, uh, of course, uh, the, the famous gas um, uh, and smoke uh, for, for uh, you know, hiding their forces and, and disrupting uh, the em- enemy's ability to observe them. Um, they sent out many, uh, or sorry, many small swarms of light uh, fire teams. Um, and their, their theory was to uh, seep into the cracks of the enemy line and flow behind them. Um, these were the kind of like the famous shock troopers, right? The lean, fast and dispersed, um, uh, that did an eruption of many thrusts through the enemy line. Uh, and then, you know, through the, the weaknesses that they could find, uh, creating breakthroughs. Um, so again, this is, this is in contrast to massing a huge number of troops and doing a big push that we'd, you know, start with, the announcement of a massive artillery barrage and then just send out 
an unfathomable number of people to die on on, on in uh, no man's land. Right, which is what the the French and the English do. And I, again, to to bring up the material constraints for why the Germans couldn't do this, because I do think it's important to understand why they innovated this way. They didn't have an empire full of bodies they could just throw out at people. Um. So uh, the the key points here uh, were to uh, disrupt enemy mental uh, processes, uh, create an ominous threat. So you know, uh, either the gas as a as a weapon of terror or. Uh, um, you know, uh, small teams uh, traveling through smoke and coming to stab you to death in the trenches, right? This is quite ominous. Um, very scary. Uh, uh, it's, it's based on first disrupting the enemy and then destroying them. Um, and dynamism is importantly pushed down to the squad level as opposed to the general staff level. Um and Boyd defines the essence of uh, infiltration tactics as uh, clouding or distorting uh, the signature and improving mobility to avoid fire, yet focusing effort on penetrating, shattering, enveloping, and mopping up disconnected or isolated debris of the adversary system. Uh, the intent is to exploit tactical dispersion in a focused way, uh, to gain tactical success and expand it into a grand tactical success, or what we would call an operational level success. So smaller, uh, larger than the level of a uh, a squad or a unit, um, but uh, smaller than a full theater level. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, so this in turn implies in yet more abstract terms that small units exploiting tactical dispersion in a focused way rather than large formations abiding by the so-called principle of concentration penetrate the adversary to generate many non-cooperative or isolated centers of gravity as a basis to magnify friction, paralyze effort, and bring about adversary collapse. I love the phrasing of all that because it's it's yeah slice up their nervous system. It's yeah, it's it's really well phrased. He, he, Boyd has a real flair for like ominous and threatening language, which I I really appreciate. Yeah, and I, I like this idea of non-cooperative centers of gravity because it it kind of suggests like a sort of like a, a a planetary system or a solar system that is like out of control or or that. Yeah, the gravitational uh, opposition is actually tearing it apart. Well, like the, the thing you'll see in like a, a science fiction thing or something where, you know, you blow up a spaceship by like attacking one of its engines so that it like flies out or like shakes the, the, the ship apart or something like that, you know? It's like the, um, the the systems that are supposed to be cooperative with each other have become non-cooperative. They've, they've been um, disaggregated. They've kind of been discoordinated by your efforts and it's... The, the machine will shake itself apart if you can get it into that kind of state. So what's interesting, too, is this is useful for thinking about what you're building after the war, um, which I don't think anyone, you know, that Boyd, one of Boyd's points about attrition warfare that I think is implied um, is that the attrition also perpetuates the conflict because the brutality is so high. Um, so, like, you have the wars can can be re reignited very quickly because of the prior brutality base. Whereas like in this form of warfare, 
um, uh, you're not you're destroying the body of of the opposing side, but you're not actually aiming to induce mass, uh, you know, mass death necessarily among the enemy. You, you just don't. You, you just want to destroy the other government's ability to govern and the other army's ability to run. So if you're going to, for example, if you're going to absorb those peoples in um, to your polity afterwards, it's a lot easier to do. Yeah. In VSM terms, you're essentially trying to destroy the enemy system five and then uh, digest the other components of their organism. Mm-hmm. Well, I would, I would maybe think it's like um, generating many non-cooperative centers of gravity would be more like shattering system three, the, the, the part that like coheres the body. Um, no, but what I, what I mean is that if you can destroy their system five, they cease to even conceive of themselves as a, as an entity um, that, that, that they have total moral collapse and therefore they collapse as a, as an adversary. But yes, you're, you're, no, you're right there. Of course that that's an important part of it too. It's, it's, that's that's what you're doing with those thrusts that are uh, uh, attacking weaknesses. I, I need to learn the, these terminology better, probably. But it's interesting to think about that versus the idea. And again, um, if you want to think about leftist misconceptions, in the leftist conception of warfare uh, and political thought, at the end goal, the enemy just doesn't exist. It is not incorporated in. Yeah. Well, like th- that reminds me of like um, something because I've I've been re-listening to the um, from Alpha to Omega like Revolutionary Strategy series, and I I think this is something you said, Derek, a long time ago. On that is that like say after you know the War of Independence or something like that, there's still kind of royalists and like monarchists around, but they're just irrelevant. Like the the the, the war doesn't like mop up and liquidate every single person who ever had a positive thought about the Queen or whatever. It just makes them completely fucking irrelevant. So they, they can hang around indefinitely, but they just, they just don't matter anymore. Or like, you know, a war of independence that like, maybe there still are Tories around or whatever, but nobody gives a shit because they're, they're politically irrelevant. But you're right that like, our popular imagination of that kind of stuff is that they magically disappear into the fucking ether. Or I guess, I mean, how do they do that? Do they all get killed or something, you know? Right. Uh, or do they all adopt your ideology because you need them to cooperate? Because the, the one thing about making making political factions irrelevant is you also don't need them. But, okay, maybe in, you know, and in Marxism, the answer, the answer actually is um, the reason why you have a dictatorship of the proletariat is not to kill the other classes, but to make them politically irrelevant long enough for them to be them to be absorbed into the mass of the proletariat and thus be invested in their outcome. But the way people talk about that um, seems to be like we purge them all. And I I think you see this in leftist political instincts to kill each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You do immediately (laughs) um, because they can't conceive of, of what it means to re to incorporate different views and actually in the terms of the Bolsheviks, this destroys the Bolsheviks eventually. Yeah. And, like, when you get, like, centrists and rightists who are just, like, kind of very apprehensive of what they perceive to be, like, leftist tendencies to hyperviolence, it's like, they're kind of not entirely wrong to be worried about that, given the kind of rhetoric that 
a lot of us kind of throw around, like as acting as if we're going to like just fucking put everyone into a blender after the revolution. And like that's even from supposedly moderate kind of leftists it is actually kind of worrying. Um, it, it leaves you worrying that the entire model of political success is just uh, either totally incoherent and fantastical or nightmarish or both. Right. The imagining of no political antagonism, um, even in a classless society to me is like, is, is ludicrous. That's like, if you want to talk about the most ludicrous, most ludicrous element of Marxism, uh, and our, our, a lot of cancelists is like, Oh yeah, we'll just like, we're just going to sit in a meeting and we're not going to have factions about how we're going to produce and distribute goods. You don't think factional things are going to, okay, you're an idiot. Like, um, and it's actually one of the only thing the post-Marxist ever said that I thought stuck. There's a book called Antagonistic that talks about this, about the left getting over, you know, the, the its idea of post-politics, because post-politics implies that that uh, you've completely destroyed the enemy and you don't need politics anymore. Yeah, which not not exactly a reassuring vision of the future. Um the uh, the thing that was mentioned earlier, I think, uh, Kyle, the notion of like smashing system five, and the identity thing kind of rhymes a bit with the the guerrilla tactics that will come up here, where it's very similar to infiltration, but it's disruption of an established regime uh, more so than disruption of a, an enemy army. Um, and so, guerrilla tactics is all about like gaining support of the population, right? Like it's kind of um, hearts and minds stuff, and and this kind of like infiltration stuff of like hit and run. Um, developing a kind of ominous and threatening in environment for the enemy regime, and and so on, and with the with the aim being to disintegrate the regime's ability to govern, uh, more so not just like disrupting an, an army's ability to function, you're disrupting a regime's ability to govern. Right. The first person they cite is T.H. Uh, Lawrence on this. Yes. So this is also during World War One. It's just in a different theater. Where Lawrence, uh, you know, famously like Lawrence of Arabia, you know, comes into a completely different uh, tactical situation and has to develop uh, an original set of tactics in order to win. Um, and this is what he comes up with in that situation. Yeah, and I think that leads us to to the interwar period. And I think this is actually going to be super interesting but it's also going to be interesting uh because we're probably not going to be able to get through it because there's implications and and uh when we talked about boyd versus uh beer that w w might make sense of why like uh linen works in war but if you try to run a society off of this it's gonna completely fall apart let's start well i mean he's his first example of of uh of this is linen. And I think he, he doesn't use these slides. Don't use, um, uh, something, but, you know, leftist jargon, but it actually is interesting. And it's in one of the most misunderstood and misused jar, uh, concepts out of Leninism. That's unique to linen. It, it isn't nowhere else. It's not in Kautsky. It's not anywhere else. It's revolutionary defeatism and why that matters. Because most people don't really understand what it's about, which is, which is why they like play this stupid game with revolutionary defeatism as if it's only about like your stance on imperialism and, and this, that, and the other. And what's actually going on um, is revolutionary defeatism actually puts, puts the ruling classes in crisis immediately. 
Um, and you actually have outside factors do a lot of the moral psychological destruction for you. Right. So the doctrine of revolutionary defeatism for Lenin was that um, in this situation in World War One, uh, where uh, the Russian Empire was fighting against uh, the you know central powers, uh, Germany and Austro-Hungary for the 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 Austro-Hungarian Empire for the most part, um, uh, it was preferable for Lenin to lose the war than to continue fighting it because the war uh, was a distraction from the class struggle at home. So essentially, you know, it, it's not that he didn't understand that losing this war would be very violent and harmful to people in the Russian Empire. It's It's that it was worse to continue fighting it uh, and ignoring the class conflict at home and putting the emphasis on the international war uh, than, uh, than to, to, to lose, right? Like that was the worst outcome. Um, and yeah, so that, that's just to give everybody listening what the, the doctrine was specifically. So he... He emphasized this a lot in his politics and his rhetoric, and you know it was one of the main Bolshevik lines that to set them apart from other uh, parties. So was this also playing off of um, general popular discontent that the the war was pretty widely despised anyway? Yes and no, because when Lenin came up with this doctrine, the war was still fairly popular. It was that the, the the momentum shifted to the Bolsheviks because they were consistent in upholding this doctrine. Um, and so they had like a solid reputation for being for this point um, because they upheld it when it was unpopular. And then when it became popular, they profited massively from holding it. But you see here already... Um, things that Boyd points out, you you have an emphasis on taking advantage of crisis. You have an emphasis on being a vanguard on a position. You have an emphasis on laying your legitimacy on moral psychological fa uh, factors. And you also have an emphasis on agitation in ways that's going to completely disrupt traditional social norms. So it's going to Amplify crisis are, as we like to say in left terms, accelerate the contradictions. Um, um, it's going to confuse the other classes, which it truly did. Um, and then, you know, and Lenin was also able to play, he was also able to play not just enemies of his enemies, but enemies of him. Um... Like, I mean, his whole strategy of using, like, the, the Russian and, you know, um, central intelligence, I mean, the, the German central intelligence to get back into Russia shielded is is brilliant, um, even though that one action probably in the long run destroyed the conservative factions of Germany being able to assert power after the end of the of the Second Reich. Um so, I mean, it, there's a whole lot going on there. Um, and Lenin is brilliant at this. And, and the quotes that, uh, that Boyd focuses in on shows that, like, all class forces hostile to us have become sufficiently entangled 
they're sufficiently at loggerheads and have sufficiently weakened themselves in the struggle, which is beyond their strength. So Lenin's able to totally disrupt like class allegiances in Russia, not because he's opposing them and taking them out by the force of the industrial proletariat, because that's not a major force in Russia outside of um, Moscow and St. Petersburg. Like what he's able to do is have everybody so at odds with taking advantage of everybody and so at odds with each other that they're the most dominant force. Like they were never the majority, like they were, they were never the true majority force. They were just the largest, they were the largest plurality at, a plurality at one point. And this is both his, this is really his um, war strategy and his seizure of power in the Russian state strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause like um, there's the thing here that point, points out that like causing, or causing or capitalizing on oscillation in the authorities. And like throughout 1917, both the provisional government and the Soviets just start to look like a bunch of dumb assholes. And yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderfully, it's a, it's a great move to like capitalize on that. And you don't, you don't even really need to defeat them. Just let them fucking discoordinate themselves. But now let's flip this. Try building a positive society on this. What's going to happen? Mm, much fucking harder to do. It's almost impossible to do. Like, the only way you can do it is attritionary force, which is what they try to do. I mean, it's, it's that whole famous line, right, where somebody, um, one of the Kronstadt people is like, like, for the love of God, take power, you assholes, you know, or whatever. Um, that, like, they're, they end up being the last people. Or maybe, maybe it's not the Bolsheviks they were asking, petitioning that of, but there was a general sentiment of, like, please fucking somebody sort this shit out. No, they they were asking the Bolsheviks, but the Bolsheviks at that time were against taking power. Um, they they thought that it was the wrong time to do it, um, and you know that would be the time where the Bolsheviks were actually the most justified in taking power. Um, and when they actually take power, they're much less justified than they were at that point in time. So that's that's July we're thinking of there. Yeah, if I'm getting that right. But like what a, what a crisis and what a fucking sentiment. Like 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 everything's going to shit around us. You're the only people who look fucking sane around here. Please do something about it. Like that's a it's a, it's a hell of a thing, right, to have going on. Yeah, uh so like um there's this point here that Lenin makes. Um I think this is you know basically in his his arguments for uh, doing a coup, right? Like, uh, uh, like why? Hey, hey now you're coup? not allowed to call this a coup because we're leftist. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, okay, well, uh... <laughs> a totally legitimate democratic seizure of power. No. Okay. 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 <laughs> so, so what he says is among the proletariat, a mass sentiment in favor of supporting the most determined, supremely bold revolutionary action against the bourgeoisie has arisen and has begun to grow vigorously. Then revolution is indeed ripe. Then indeed, if we have correctly gauged all the conditions indicated above, and if we have chosen the moment rightly, our victory is assured. So this was true in July but it absolutely wasn't true when the Bolsheviks took power. The proletariat was vacillating just as much as everybody else. It was just that the Bolsheviks had really determined cadres who were mostly from the soldiery um, and who were the best armed people in Petrograd uh, that they could do this. So 
His assessment of the weakness of all the forces around him was correct, but he couldn't just say, let's just seize power. He had to make an appeal to the proletariat as being determined and unified in order for this to like make any sense in Marxist terms, which it didn't. Um, like it made sense maybe in a kind of broad strategic Marxist sense, but like the proletariat was not itching to seize power at when the Bolsheviks seized power. It was quite demobilized actually. Was it more was it more just everything had degenerated, especially after the Kornilov affair, everything had degenerated to such a point, you know? Right, exactly. Everything had reached the most extreme form of degeneration and vacillation. And so And if the, if somebody didn't do it, somebody else was. And the Bolsheviks were the last man standing. And they, someone had to do a coup, someone had to seize power, and like Lenin was just like the most determined person around. And, um, and for the for the listeners, the Kornilov thing was that um, basically the provisional government kind of totally shit the bed over like half allowing a coup to happen, but then that shit the bed as well. So it's kind of like double stacks of failure all around for everyone. And then the Bolsheviks just kind of end up being looking like the most competent people in the room and having kind of the slightly better organization than everyone. Yeah, they have the most guns, right? So they win by default. Right, right. But but it's obvious that they didn't have as much popular support, and we know that from their need to ban the constituent assemblies in 1919. And also for the fact that, like, um, when the revolution was happening, like, people were kind of just, like, hanging around uh, Petrograd, hanging around St. Petersburg, like, watching as sort of, like, passive observers of what was going on among these people. Yeah, I mean, factions. it was a relatively bloodless coup because people just were kind of standing back. Like, like so the, the, the raid on the Winter Palace was not a mass action. It was a fairly small maneuver. And it was like the only people in the Winter Palace who were determined to fight against the Bolsheviks were the government ministers of the provisional government, the bourgeois ministers. But they their soldiers wouldn't fight for them because they didn't give a shit. Yeah, they just stood back. And that was that that's what's interesting. But, you know, so it's easy to seize power in that. But then how do you build build moral cohesiveness afterwards? The the only way basically, you know, in many ways is is force. This is why, like, all the Lars Lee discussions about Lenin always strike me as missing the point, because I'm like, okay, so what if Lenin wanted to establish a democracy? He didn't think he could in, in the conditions. We don't think he could in those conditions, and, and the Bolsheviks maintain power. Um, so he wasn't going to. It's irrelevant that he wanted to. Well, I think I think something that really, like, strikes me is that, you know, this kind of, like, vacillation um, was sort of characteristic of the American Revolution. Um, uh, and that was one of the major problems the American forces had was that, like, a lot of people just didn't really give a shit about them. Um, uh, but if you look at, like, the French Revolution, um, the activity in Paris is, like, so starkly in contrast with what happened in St. Petersburg. Like the amount of of mass mobilization and popular mobilization in the city of Paris is like completely different from what was happening in St. Petersburg. 
In October, anyway, yeah. It's, it's similar to what's happening in February, but... Yes, 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 yes. Mm. Yeah. It's not reassuring at all, right? And especially that, like, October still ends up being such a huge fucking influence on left the left today. And, like, looking at it through this lens, maybe even calling back to the previous episode, you'd start to maybe think that what had happened there was that that whole process, that whole system had reached maximum entropy and had burned down to ash, basically. And, like... The, the the way it ended up going was just the kind of white noise that was left at the end of the entropy tail. And it could have been basically anything else. Like, um, it's it's not necessarily a win on strength. It's just a win on, like, this is the way a couple of dice rolls happen to go after everything else burned out. Right, which means that you're basically taking a, what is a good lesson on how to win a, a chaotic political situation, but then basically trying to turn that into how to build a positive society where there's no evidence that that's how that that has anything to do with it well expecting a positive society to emerge from that kind of maximal entropy heat bath just seems like a kind of boltzmann brain kind of theory of of political revolution like where like a, a Bolt, the boltzmann brain thing is like this hypothetical like in a vacuum if you wait a trillion years a brain might just instantly materialize just from quantum fluctuations but it, it would think a single thought and then instantly decay, right? Because that's that's just a thing that could happen. Random fluctuations in a maximal heat noise bath could just spontaneously create a very organized structure like a brain. But of course it would instantly decay because it's a brain floating in the fucking middle of space, right? And I feel like a lot of a lot of left strategy basically boils down to a Boltzmann brain sort of thing. You see it more explicitly with the like riot porn sort of people or the end notes sort of people that like oh spontaneous uprising riot rah 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 will somehow in build the new society <laughs> yeah as as if it will just materialize in the fucking vacuum from quantum fluctuations and it's like boltzmann's point was like yeah this this thing can happen theoretically that that could happen but you'd be a fucking fool to count on it <laughs> you know you're basically waiting on stochastic chance over a scale of bajillions of years well so I think that in terms of like Lenin's justification that we read here about the support of the proletariat or the kind of like a claim of a of a, a mass proletarian will in, working in favor of the Bolsheviks, that's a very uh, specious claim that like honestly wasn't supported at all by like obvious facts on the ground. Um but also not even concluding that the proletariat wasn't the mass group in Russia at the time. Yeah, no, but the 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 point that isn't discussed here is um Lenin's sort of hypothesis that the provisional government had completely failed to give the peasants land that they, they had promised them. And if the Bolsheviks were to give that land to the peasants, they would achieve broad popularity. Like, that hypothesis was much more plausible than what he is saying about the proletariat. And honestly, the, 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 strategy, the, the, the strategy that he is describing here and that Boyd is analyzing is really a Bonapartist strategy. And the success of Lenin was really premised on the success of them being the only people who were going to do the land reform. Um, which is a Bonapartist thing, uh, you know, because we talked about how Bonapartism um, arises out of the peasantry. <laughs> but, so what's fascinating about this is it means that 
that Lenin's primary self-conception is fundamentally false. I mean, and the thing is, and the thing is, I think Lenin does believe this, but it's it's also clear um, between this and uh, the national policy, which the, the Bolsheviks continually have to revise, and not just under Stalin, but even in Lenin's lifetime, because they basically promise. Uh, you know, if you empower your proletariat, we'll give you national autonomy as, you know, but let's continuously redefine what national autonomy means um, and limit it. And when you get to stuff like Poland, they're just like, and no. Um, and and the reason why is is if they had been honest about their their strategy in the long run, the nationalist strategy, the nationalists would have never bought on because the goal of in- from the, from the Leninist perspective and from the Marxist perspective, actually, the goal of encouraging nationalism is to encourage independence and autonomy and development. So then those nations can dissolve. That's the goal, like which doesn't ever happen. We've never seen it actually happen, but that's the goal. So it's there's two ways where this self conception is fundamentally honest, and this is why I was talking about comparing Boyd versus Bohr. What Boyd's concerned with. He's absolutely right. This is going to work, um, but if you what what he's not looking at is how do you pivot back to society now that you won? Because the Bolsheviks, I mean, th- there aren't many social formation. I mean, people don't really think about this, but the only other social formation that that I know historically that is shorter lived as a victorious revolutionary society than the USSR is maybe Athenian democracy that doesn't even last three, two and a half generations. Yeah. Really. So that's the beer angle, right? That like you have to consider building a viable alternative, not just the way to defeat the enemy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is, yeah, which we'll see kind of in Boyd uh, when we get to the end of this section, uh, the, the end of this uh, reading too. Yeah. Um, so that, that whole thing about the Soviet revolutionary strategy was framed as one of the three major advances um, in the interbellum period, um, the other two being Blitzkrieg and Maoist guerrilla warfare. Um, we're about to start a major section on the Blitzkrieg concept, but I think we can summarize it here by saying that it's kind of this uh, fusion of in- infiltration tactics with techn- technological advances um, that kind of doubles down on this, like breaking through by piercing with multiple narrow thrusts rather than, you know, ident- the Clausewitz thing of identify the enemy fortress and then just throw all your shit at the wall. Um, yeah, they didn't attack the Maginot line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just breeze past it. Um which, uh, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, but interestingly, that was one of the main reasons why uh, Hitler had so much clout with the, the general staff, uh, was that he, being a good modernist, um, pushed extremely hard to do the most radical thing um, and constantly berated the general staff for being too conservative. So doing this, like, end run a very aggressive end run around the French uh, was seen as like an evidence of his genius. Um, And that led the general staff to trusting him in situations where they absolutely shouldn't have. Yeah. So for the listeners, it's, um, it's kind of one of another example of um, fighting the previous war where after the first world war, the French built a big load of fortresses around the, along the the border. And then 
when it came time for World War II, um, the Germans just sped past them in tanks. I was like, yeah, fuck you, whatever. Um, have you have you ever noticed that the French after the revolution always fight the previous war? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a thing. It's a thing that happens. Um, and then the the third element um, is the Maoist guerrilla warfare, kind of fusing the um, the old Schwanza stuff with guerrilla, guerrilla strategy and fusing it with Soviet strategy, um, giving what is uh, framed as a comprehensive framework for modern total war. Um, the, the shared elements in all of these being the focus on disruption and surprise and on the kind of moral degradation of the enemy, uh, trying to shatter their shatter their morale and um, break their break their communication systems, break their kind of nervous system, uh, more so than just like trying to hammer them into the ground in direct conflict. I, w- I will say in, in a weird defense of, of Maoist strategy in general, which people will be surprised that I would defend, the the Maoist positive strategy as a result of their um guerrilla war is much more effective than the Soviet one. Um, yeah, importantly, that uh, re- excerpt that uh, we read from Lenin that Boyd's uh, cites was written prior to the Civil War, um, whereas the Maoist doctrine really comes out of their Civil War. Uh, right. And the Maoist doctrine is... The, the whole notion of mass line, as much as it annoys the crap out of me because it becomes populism in most people's mind, but it actually is about reincorporating all elements of society that can be reincorporated into the political vision. Now, this this degenerates very quickly into a literal caste system, but, but like, um, in the beginning, it's actually quite smart. So, for example, uh, when... When Lenin says, shoot all the sex workers, Mao says, uh, you know, give them jobs and and give them a productive uh, education. You know, basically it's a re-education camp, but it's it's one with jobs and, and stable housing and food, which a lot of these people had not had ever. Um uh, which is a different strategy than what Lenin does with the same sorts of social problems. And actually, um, another thing that's interesting, and I've always talked about this as a, to the Chinese purges as opposed to the um, Soviet ones, is the Soviets killed a lot of people directly. Um, the Maoist purges, the political purges, we're not, you know, not we're not talking about like the starvation period. Um, they do executions, but they're actually kind of rare compared to the Soviets. Um, most of what the people die from is suicide. So it's like it's 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 social stigma shaming and they're breaking people's social identity completely. But they're not actually in some cases, they're not actually even trying to um, completely kill them. So it's 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 a different it's a very different strategy. And I think it's implied in the way they wage war in the context in which they did, because Soviet society, and in many ways, if you see Stalinism as like a sincere development of Marxist-Leninism in the context of the Russian Civil War proceeding into World War II, um, it's so awful, partly because it's created to win a, a nasty set of situations that's created by, by uh, basically by Lenin's own doctrine. Um, and the only way to do so is... Um, to do what the capitalist states did, but even faster. Um, 
Whereas the Malice strategy, I mean, it kills a bunch of people for different reasons. But the biggest deaths in China are not because Mao is trying to kill people. Um, and I do think people do have to look at that when they're making historical comparisons. Does Boyd, Boyd here ends up, will end up being pretty damn impressed by the Maoist guerrilla warfare? Yeah. Yeah, it sees him as kind of a, a, a grand synthesizer. Um, yeah. Yeah, that'll, that'll make for some good stuff in the next session. But, um, uh, no, that's it's another. I don't know. We, we've covered another third of the of the chapter, so I think we should probably start to wrap up here. But do we have anything else to say about the material we've covered so far? Um, anything? Anything jump out at us as as needing needing to revisit? I wish Boyd would look at why he was right more. Because I mean, I think he's right, but a lot of his he seem he like so many people who are war thinkers. They're political determinists. And so he's not looking at the context for why these things existed, except for a few points where he does talk about the limits of aristocratic thinking. But he doesn't like look at he doesn't look at like Soviet strategy as emerging out of the particular Soviet context. And he actually doesn't. And he takes Lenin at his word, weirdly. Um, I don't know if he didn't study the political context of the economic context of the USSR. I mean, that's a lot to ask someone to study. But it feels like that would be important if you're trying to deduce things for what to do in the United States with its military. Is this just his, his idealism that we were critiquing in the previous episode? Maybe there's something else going on. Yeah, I, I, I think it gets back to that political determinism you were talking about, Derek, right? That like, if you are a political determinist, then it's very easy to take Lenin at his word because he is very uh, definite in his pronouncements about political situations and uh, not entirely single-minded in what he does, but has a kind of determination um, that is sort of veers in and, in and out of being brilliant and being totally crackpot. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, if you're a political determinist, uh, you're probably going to uh, be kind of uh, taken with Lenin and his writing. It's very easy to be to be taken in by. Also, he writes simpler. I mean, if you read if you read Lenin, Lenin can make these statements sometimes about very complicated subjects of which things have changed. But you you can get into the confidence and clarity in which he states them. Even if you read Engels, who's a clearer writer than Marx, you don't ever get that out of the out of the pre Kalskyite. Um, socialist set they don't write that way um they're, they're way too they're way abs they're way more abstract um even when they're brilliant they're not simple i mean the brumaire for example is brilliant and easy to read but it's actually not a simple text um so so here's a here's an offhand thought um like i mean i think the, the political determinism stuff is off I, my theory as to why it's appealing is because it's something that when when people come across this stuff they feel like they can actually act on it whereas a, the, the curse of a systemic understanding of things is that you often don't entirely know where to intervene or what to do. Um, but it's possible maybe the Boyd stuff kind of gives us a way of thinking about that sort of stuff. Like, how do you intervene in a system to disrupt it and to start to tear it apart? And maybe that's not entirely... I don't know, maybe there's a similar appeal there in that it's... Here's, here's a way you could actually do something. I, I think the, the political determinism... Is, is usually illusory, right? Like, or it, or it, its appeal is illusory because it's it just kind of leaves you thinking you can change things by sheer act of will. 
Uh, Which you can't. Yeah, exactly. But for Boyd, it's more tractable. Like that, an act of force that severs the enemy's nervous system, that might actually work in a way that like a, an act of political will may not. Well, building a society and winning a war are completely different things, which is why I've always found this whole like notion that you would have on the left that like, well, we know to do what the USSR did because they won. And, you know, and to hear that now also is kind of a joke because you're like, well, what happened? Did 1991 not happen? But um, beyond that, um, it's also kind of the wrong lesson because you're like, well, they won at winning a war. They didn't win at building a society. Yeah, they failed miserably at building the thing they wanted to build. And But it's, it's like everything gets funneled into the event of the winning the conflict, which maybe is the weakness of the point stuff as well, is that it's, it's all f- focused on winning conflicts. But we need to, we need to bring our, our sort of other understandings like beer and stuff back in here to think more about like, how, how could you simultaneously defeat um, an enemy that seems to have absolute fucking hegemonic power over everything and also build a viable alternative that sticks around afterwards? Well, he he um, does get into this in the end of the chapter, but it's very preliminary. And uh, I, th- I think that Beer's understanding is a lot more sophisticated there, even if it's obviously not complete. Um, yeah. I was, but it is interesting thinking about that and like thinking about that in terms of like leftist thought and what leftists want to do. Um, because again, when we talk about all the instincts being wrong on this, the instincts are extremely wrong. Yeah. Well, I I think the interesting thing about this situation, uh, that we talk about with October is that, um, it's almost not replicable (laughs) for one thing. (laughs) Yes. And also like, um, we talked about the Brumaire being a complex text and, and so on. And, uh, I think that, um, yeah, you know, in the Brumaire, we get sort of the idea of Bonapartism, and I think October is sort of like the most extreme form of Bonapartism, because it's not just that the class forces are in stasis, it's that they're actually exhausted. The stasis has burnt them out. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like an even more extreme form of Bonapartism. Um but which is interesting, not to defend Trotsky a super lot, but it's relevant to your point, Kyle. Um, Trotsky once said that if he'd have if he'd have been the head of the USSR, um, he would have had to have been a Bonapartist too. That there'd have been no way in that situation for that not to happen. Right. And um, this is the point I think that's important is that if you look at the Bolsheviks versus the Mensheviks. The Menshevik orientation was much more constructive than the Bolshevik one. Like, they had a vision of uh, revolutionary construction that um, they were very uh, stuck to and which was more sort of like, you know, in accordance with, uh, like, Marxist doctrine, Um, much more so, uh, because it, it had sort of like a at least semi-plausible path forward for building of something, right? Like the gradualist kind of transition stuff, yeah. Well, not, not the Mensheviks weren't totally gradualist, actually, but... No, they just wanted to make a constitution and then, like, 
build up capitalism enough so that there would be enough workers that they could actually have a democratic workers republic. Which is what which is what the Bolsheviks do anyway. They just do it by gunpoint. Yes, and the problem is that even though the the Mensheviks had a constructive vision that the Bolsheviks had abandoned in favor of a destructive one uh, that was quite um, like Bonapartist, um, their constructive vision was completely implausible in the situation they were in because. The bourgeoisie just proved itself too weak to be what they wanted it to be again and again and again. And they 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 tied themselves to that horse because they didn't really know what else to do within the confines of Marxist doctrine. And Lenin broke with Marxist doctrine and did what he did. And it was a disaster for reasons that were predictable within the Marxist doctrine and which the Mensheviks accused him of. Uh, but they also did not have a way forward. So I understand what Trotsky was saying in saying, like, someone had to be a Bonaparte in this situation. Um, right. There might have been better Bonapartes. I mean, that, that Trotsky is not saying he would have been Stalin, but that that formation would have been inevitable in that situation, particularly, I mean, his, his reason for it was, was uh, because of the revolution of failing in Germany. Um, but, you know, and to, to Lenin's fairness... He didn't think that <laughs> he didn't think that he would be doing this by himself in a in such a constrained context. Yes, it only it was only plausible within Marxist doctrine with a view of grand strategy. It was only plausible at the grand strategic level, not at the national level um, at all. Right, but this strategy this this strategy of warfare would have only worked at the national level in the context specifically of the collapse of Tsarist Russia. It can't could not have been and was not able to be transferred over to Germany or to any highly developed capitalist nation. Right. And so what what Lenin is saying here when he like does a massive fudge in terms of describing the state of the proletariat is kind of a problem that carries down the line for Marxist-Leninism because it always represents itself as a sort of toolkit that can be applied to any kind of situation of class conflict. When in fact, it's like a very specific thing that is like pretty dodgy within the confines of Marxist theory um, and probably not a very good... It's a periphery state a periphery underdeveloped state who tries to develop capitalism under semi-feudal absolutism um, without, you know, um, and actually also from Plakhanov forward, they ignore Marxist own writings on, on the possibility of development in Russia. Um, his letters to Vera Zerlik, uh, the, I forget the precise Russian who also uh, concurrently developed a similar opinion, but, um, from Kanoff forward, they reject that possibility of leapfrogging off the capitalist world and not having to do internal capitalist development. And what the Bolsheviks decide to do is they're going to do the capitalist development themselves as a state. Um, I mean, explicitly. I mean, he uses the term state capitalist. And, and, and then he has to kind of backtrack and do sort of like social democratic land reforms in the NEP. Yeah, but I think that the reason why Marxist-Leninism becomes a wildfire and takes the world by storm 
is because it is a solution of sorts or a strategy to address the question of what do we do in a peripheral state if our bourgeoisie is too weak to do a bourgeois revolution? Right, and and so it becomes a model for how to have effectively bourgeois revolutions in the post-colonial world. Mm-hmm. Which is what it reconverges on, ultimately. Um, right, but it's but it's kind of useless now. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, worthless. It's it's such a frustrating thing, right? Like, and again, it's 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 frustrating because the left is so fucking mired in this kind of stuff. But then taking this like honest look at that whole situation, the whole thing looks like a nested set of double binds, such that none of it could have worked out. Like, there's just no there's no good option anywhere that could have really resulted in any meaningful kind of liberation and. And then we actually supplant the history of other lefts, like on this. I mean, it's 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 crazy. I was listening to uh, another podcast. Uh, the state was it? Look it up. It's 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 a regrettable century spinoff podcast with some other people. Uh, measures taken. The measures taken. Yes, and they were talking about how <laughs> at the time Ingalls actually said the most advanced socialist party was in Britain, and um, and how like nobody ever looks at that. Like even when it's Ingalls saying it, they don't look at it. It's always it, it. There's a there's a set kind of mind train where we don't we you know even in the United States where you're so far removed from those historical conditions, um, you like okay we look at Marx, skip early S P day, skip the actual Marxist party too because no one likes them. Nineteen hundred S P day, skip. Bolsheviks skip maybe and this is where you start picking your faction and then ignore the 20th century almost entirely like after after like 1945 so it's uh it's it's kind of um from the standpoint of building systems or even winning wars it's like what it's it's again it's not it's a very rigid orientation loop that's really easy to confound like incredibly easy to confound yeah, which which is the previous episode, right? With the um, the the necessity of this like destructive creative loop of refining concepts and building up, building up understandings, and that's just not the thing that's happening, right? Like we have a strategy that didn't even work in the periphery, being reapplied in all kinds of fucking places. Being uh, we've we've lost track of like how to we've lost track of that early Marxist thread of like how to do revolution in the core, which seems like a super relevant thing, but has been dropped. Uh, like a hot brick, and so uh, where are we in terms of observation and orientation? We're fucking nowhere. Where are we in terms of decision and action? We're fucking nowhere. You know. I want to to just skip ahead a little bit in the chapter here, quite a bit in the chapter here. But when Boyd talks about positive elements that will uh, bring people into your system five, into your unifying vision of or your identity as as a polity. Um, Two of the things he points out are, one, so ingredients needed to pursue your vision. Number one, insight, ability to peer into and discern the inner nature or workings of things. So if your uh, observation and orientation is totally fucked, and even the most profound Althusserian wizardry is unconvincing to people, um, you are not going to have that insight point, right? Right. And the second, the second one I wanted to point out is adaptability. 
the power to adjust or change in order to cope with new or unforeseen circumstances. So not what happened in 1917 <laughs> and not ignoring the entire 20th century afterwards, right? And not continuing to, to, to promise the same strategies. I mean, I, I think, and I, I would love to say that this plagues just like the revolutionary Marxist left, but it absolutely doesn't. There's there's a brain worm that I think has to do, I think it has to do with psychological needs for moral righteousness, but instead of actually developing a functional morality. Um, but but regardless, it it it's it is it is anti-systemic and easy to gain. And I think we can totally see this without you know as far as like politics is war, uh, Corbinite labor. Uh, failed in every single front on these. Um, post Bernie Sanders DSA continuously fails in every single front on these. It refuses to adapt. It refuses to change its talking points. Um, it, it, when it does, it tails its enemy. Uh, it picks up its enemy's talking points without thinking it'll change its own vision. I mean, it's it's fundamentally um, broken as far as systems building. Yeah, and like I mean, I it, it's it kind of cuts to the heart of this whole project, right? That like I I kind of believe and insist that it has to be possible to like talk to people in a way that they can they can understand and to update our mental model of the world and to be dynamic without that just being right wing tailism or being some sort of weird bullshit. Like there there has to be a possibility of that actually working, right? Like that doesn't collapse into like oh let's go door knocking for the fucking democrats or something i that ha that it, it's it seems weird that that wouldn't be the case but yes i don't know where we seem to be stuck in a fucking loop here with um with this kind of stuff and uh, like uh, as to why we keep re raising these critiques it's because we care and it's because like uh like i, I don't ever want to do the whole like post-left or anti-left sort of thing like if i ever do this anti-left shit like you all have permission to fucking assassinate me <laughs> Um, but on it, yeah, like because that 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 sh that stuff's fucking horseshit. Like the 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 reason we're so fucking critical is because we care and because we do think that this could be done better and could be done otherwise. Because um, if if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't bother with this fucking shit. Like I mean, I'd be wasting my fucking time doing this if I didn't actually believe that we we could do this project and and actually succeed. You know. Well, to, well, to a point, uh, what I see happening is if we're not careful, we're we're inducing conditions of maximal entropy for the con for the things we care about the most, which is it, which is you know, which is why you want to intervene because you're just like, no, you're you're setting an exhaustion criteria that's going to just tear through people, and their options are going to be bow out or actually become antagonistic to you, um, which, which I mean, which is the rational core this post anti-left shit um which i think is shit and i think it's reactionary but i also i i get how people get there um with these kind of incentives oh i understand it yeah i mean like how do people get there i mean they, they just get exhausted after like you, i mean you spend maybe five six years doing the bernie thing and you just pack up your shit and go home that's you get you get tired out of it yeah right and it's easy it's also easy for outside people to game and people are like well why are we always discovering that left-wing politics have some weird right-wing hedge fund money? I'm like, well, have you heard about an ODA loop? Yeah. Like, <laughs> is, is it not a good way to totally confuse everybody is to, like, throw out all these random, you know, confusing forces that oppose certain parts that you want to oppose that maybe should be opposed, but, like, 
from multiple strategies that they don't expect from you. Oh yeah, but you can never do that because your 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 structures on how to do this preclude you. What I will say though is um it's easier for writers to take advantage of a lot of this stuff because a lot of their stuff is purely defensive warfare. Because they're defending the status quo, yeah. Right. They're not having to build something at the same time. And that's a that that makes their project fundamentally different and frankly easier. It does, yeah. It um that that whole thing kind of it it's a huge fucking problem. Like it's an enormous problem of like the the fact that we have to build an alternative, it's that's a gigantic fucking expenditure of energy. And it's it's something the problem reminds me of like um I think it was like a Nick Land quote or something that like in his in his sort of thing, capitalism is very impressive because to him it's a system that's building itself out of resource out of only its enemies' resources. So for him, capital is building itself out of human resources, and that's a really impressive trick. Is that like this is a system that has to struggle to survive using only the resources of its enemy, and then like you scrape off all the land shit from that, but the, like the sentiment, I think that there's something in there, right? That like it is actually extraordinarily difficult to build a system using only the resources available to your enemy. Like, and we have to build, if, if there's ever going to be anything after this horseshit, we have to build that new thing out of the scrap that we find around us. And that's just the fucking situation. Which is how all prior societies were built, though. Exactly. That, that's exactly. But without any, without any foreknowledge. Um, I mean, th- that's one of the things about that land quote. I think it's the, one of the last essays in Fang Numina where that, where that said. He also accuses Marxists of being like secret conservatives because they're, they're pansies fighting, fighting the anti-human elements of, of modernity. But it's that. It's that, it's, that uh, it's the critique of transcendental miserabilism. That's, that, that's the essay. Right, it is. And that, that essay is the one also, it's the turning point in Land's thought where he becomes reactionary, even though he says it's not. He says it's after, like... You, you can see it happen. You can see the gears turn in his head where he's like, uh, something like, life will go on even if it doesn't resemble life. That, like, you know, that this is where he starts to go into, like, ca- capital as an AI that will escape the planet or something. Is that, like, and that we're the shitheads for not being, you know, into that, you know? Yeah, for not throwing ourselves to this vitalistic machine of abstract capital, like. But his his point about like yeah, the, the, a system that bootstraps itself out of the environment of its enemy is an impressive fucking feat. And like, okay, scrape off all the land stuff from that. You're still left with like, the task to uh, the task available to us, and as you've said, Derek, the task of all previous big revolutions was to build themselves out of the available materials in the environment. And that's just always the, the 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 truth. That's there's there's no other way to do it. You can't you can't like create something ex nihilo just out of your your sort of moral convictions or something. You, we have to create it in the here and now. I I want to I want to move this discussion into our next episode if we could because I think it's important for us in summary to discuss in what ways. Boyd's thought is useful to us if we are not operating from the assumption of either uh, proto-state guerrilla conflict or interstate conflict. Because that, in many ways, is, I, I think, like, similar to what you were saying about conservatives, uh, Derek, uh, it, it's, it's, it's an easier problem to think about. Um, So I think when we think about conflict with capitalism, uh, we do need to adjust what's being said because we can't 
operate from the same statist assumptions that uh, Boyd is, is using. listening to General Intellect Unit. While you wait for the next episode, you can follow us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook and all the podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. You can also go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month to help keep the lights on and get access to our community discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Fern Vlog, From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. They're all excellent shows and excellent folks. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Thank you.